This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's set the Business Week agenda because we need to figure out what's going on in this trade, what's on investors' mind. We've got the perfect team assembled to do that. Uh, In the meantime, just bringing you one headline that the Fed will begin buying broad portfolio of U.S. corporate bonds. That certainly is going to play into the discussions today. Let's talk about what's happening, especially on the equity side, with Gina Martin-Adams. That's because she's the chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Dave Wilson, of course, our stocks editor, author of the chart and stock of the day. Uh, Dave, I want to start with you because you heard Charlie break down the numbers, the swings that we've been seeing. Take us inside the trade. Help us understand what's what, what levers are moving here. Yeah, it looks like things have just kind of stabilized a bit, arguably, after, you know, what we saw on Friday with stocks getting off to a pretty good early start and then not being able to hang on to the gains. Today was kind of the opposite where you had the early losses and markets come back. Uh, You see technology stocks at the forefront today. You see communication stocks. And there we're talking about the likes of uh, Google's owner Alphabet as well as Facebook. But it's not like any one group is sort of a a standout at this point. It's just interesting to see the kind of reversals that have gone on today's trading. I mean, you, you know, early on, you saw, take the travel stocks. I mean, they've certainly been among the more volatile shares out there. And they were down big time early on. And now you look at them, I mean, Americans up six-tenths of a percent. You know, Delta's a little changed. And, you know, cruise lines, you got Carnival uh, down a bit, 2.3%. But Royal Caribbean's barely lower. So, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of movement in those shares. Uh, Same thing with the biggest banks, which are a little changed at this point after having fallen early on. So a lot of recovery going on. In today's trading, after uh, some early losses that look mighty familiar in terms of the kinds of stocks that yeah. were falling. All right, let's bring in Gina Martin Adams. Gina, um, you're writing on the Bloomberg. You talk about the stocks rebound, stocks bounce back, may remain under fire until green shoots emerge. I do feel like we're at this juncture. Jason and I were talking about it last week, about a week ago exactly, that all of a sudden investors were like, wait a minute. Like, you know, we've gotten way ahead of ourselves. Let's see what the economic and corporate profit outlook ultimately is and we need more data on that. I, I would totally agree. I think what actually happened is the first few months of this recovery rally was really all about pricing a new Fed policy, a new monetary policy regime. Uh, once we got to the point where we fully priced extremely low interest rates for a very long period of time, yeah. we sort of lost our momentum. And, and I think now the next phase has to be about, okay, great, we are willing to pay a lot more uh, for equities given just this permanently low interest rate landscape, but where's the earnings outlook going to go? And I do think that that's going to be the next leg of the rally or not rally is sort of the progression of earnings estimates, the progression of economic green shoots. Will we start to see some growth? And how does that forecast compare to the current consensus expectation, which is sub 2% growth um, in the next 12 months following the end of this month? So expectations are very low. 
but yeah. economic growth is also pretty slim. And I think the market's just going to go back and forth trying to figure out, you know, how to pair expectations with reality. So we just got to get comfortable with this level of back and forth, Gina? I think that's some of it. I think also, though, if you look at things like factor leadership and sector leadership, you have seen some rotation back to more stability, more defensiveness, sort of the, the momentum, quality, low volatility trade that really dominated pre-crisis uh, does appear to be making a little bit of headway uh, over the last week or so. And I think that's really just about stuff like high volatility and high bankruptcy risk and kind of low quality stocks really ripped out of the March low so much more than they normally do in the first leg of recovery that I think that segment of the rally got a little bit ahead of itself. Uh, and that's the segment where you would normally see, you know, growth prospects start to emerge. Right. But we're really starting to question that segment. So I think it's going to be a back and forth and kind of choppier market um, for the for the factor and sector leaders as well. Hey, just quickly, um, Gina, just about 20 seconds. When can we expect fairly for companies to start saying, okay, here's our outlook. We have an outlook to give you. How much, how, when, can, when should we expect them to be able to do that? Yeah, I think that you'll hear a little bit more of that in the June, uh, the July quarter, sorry. So with the next earnings season really kicks off um, only a month from now, a little less than a month from now, shockingly. Okay. And at, at that point, I think we'll hear a little bit more about, okay, at least for June, what did the reopenings in the U.S. look like? What does our, do our prospects for growth right, look right. like? Uh, you know, how are we going to do in terms of liquidity and leverage? Those types of things are going to start to eke out, I think, in the July quarter. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Dave Wilson. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, our next guest, Tom Goodmanson, is president and CEO at the customer experience intelligence company, Calabrio. Uh, they use AI-driven analytics, and they use it to track customer behavior and sentiment, and they work with their clients uh, using that information. They're based in Minneapolis. That's exactly where Tom joins us on the phone on this Monday. Tom, welcome to uh, Bloomberg Radio. Nice to have you here with us. You know, I have to be honest with you. I read your website a couple times, read a bunch of your press releases and some other information. What exactly do you guys do using AI um, to kind of bridge gaps between customers and clients? Yeah, thanks, Carol. You know, we, we really, it, to put it simply, we sit in contact centers and we're listening to what's going on between the customer and the, and the uh, agent, and we're helping that it be a better, uh, a better insight. And so we're doing, we provide analytic insights by uh, recording and then, and then running it through our engines to do things like predictive uh, NPS, NPS. We do predictive uh, scoring. We do predictive how, how agents think. So we, we really are trying to get in the minds of the agent in order to give a better uh, situation to the end user. And so this plays into one of the terms that we have all uh, started to use and come to grips with, with, which is contact tracing. So help us understand how it fits into to that broader effort. Yeah, so if you think about this is a very heated, if somebody's calling uh, in and they've got COVID um, or the, the other is they find out, you know, they get the, the people that have, have been diagnosed and they find out who they've talked to, you have to have a, a kind of a bedside manner. And so we're helping those agents 
uh, train and understand how to how to help. And then the AI is driving to to maybe see trends. Uh, so we're not just taking the word of the person calling in, but we might be able to spot some other trends that are going on in a region in an area. So are you learning anything so far through that work? Because we're all trying to figure out what happens next here. Yeah, the, the work we're finding right now is think about how much we have to, to spin up, right? So the work is maybe three to four weeks old in a lot of the regions that are just spinning these up as we start to open up uh, the world a little bit here. And so the insights have not started pouring in other than people are, are scared uh, when they call and just trying to provide calming. That's probably the number one thing that I'm seeing is just being having a calming influence for now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think about you guys, you know, play into different worlds. You get to you get you have a certain window that maybe some of us don't. And I do wonder what it says to us about kind of where we are in our world, especially as post COVID-19. We're not done as many of uh, the doctors we talk to and members of the medical community remind us, you know, that we're not anywhere near to being done. But we are reopening and people are making their way back. We're trying to figure out, okay. What does our world look like? What does the marketplace look like? What does the economy look like? What would you say? You know, that's a, a, a good question. And if I had the answer to that, I'd probably have uh, my employees back at work. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, people, are, people are really cautious. You're seeing a lot of excitement. They're, they're, they're tired of being at home and, and homeschooling and doing all that stuff. But then there's that fear factor. Um, we've got a, a lot of things that, uh, you know, people feel that they've been left out of, but they don't know how quite to go back. And so I think as some uh, programs like this should allow us that confidence that we're going to find uh, problems and hotspots more quickly than we did early this year uh, and, and allow us to maybe give, give us a little bit of confidence as we go back. Right. And to isolate maybe a little bit more effectively. And to that end, Tom, I mean, what's your sense about who should ultimately be running these types of operations? Because I think a lot of people candidly are skeptical of the federal government, but we also know that state and local governments have different levels of funding. What's the optimal uh, system from your perspective? You know, from my perspective, it's a, I think it's a public-private type uh, partnership. Um, the public good, the health departments and what have you, I think they have the data and the know-how. Um, companies like ours have the skill to let them get to work and do what they do best. And then they, between the two of us, then spin up and partner with uh, business provider outs uh, outsourcers, so BPOs, uh, to get them the bodies that they need. Uh, because this is a, a body intensive, as you can imagine. The, the, the CDC and George Washington University say that we should have 30 tracers for every 100,000 residents. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of people to get spun up to make this work. So the whole idea, right, we, Jason have had, and I have had tons of conversations about the importance of testing and tracing, and that's how it's going to give the confidence. So you guys are working to kind of help workplaces get those programs in place. Just got about 40 seconds left here. Yeah, we've got, you know, we've got, uh, we're working really hard to help companies, but also the state governments. We've mm. uh, engaged with many state governments. We think that that's the right place to put the biggest centers because each state, as we've seen, has had different uh, approaches to and, and different outbreaks. And so we think that that's the best place to help them. And then companies, of course, uh, if they do the next level to help their employees is a really important step as well.
And we should point out that you're partnering with Amazon and Trilio to um, work on those virtual contact tracing operations uh, around the U.S. Um, really appreciate Excuse me, your time. Tom Goodmanson is president and CEO at Calabrio. He is based in Minneapolis, and that's where he joined us on the phone, Jason, on this Monday. Yeah, interesting to see. I mean, these are going to be massive logistical and yeah. to some extent almost infrastructure challenges. And if you can't offset that with some machine learning, obviously that would make sense. Interested to hear how this all goes because through the summer we're going to be. It's very a new corporate system that you need too. Yeah. Right. Another totally. thing that you have to have in place. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason. Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. A big headline uh, crossing this morning, courtesy of the Supreme Court, a decision that really was not expected, and I would say even less expected was the breakdown in terms of yeah. how the justices voted. Let's talk about it with Jeff Green because this is a milestone, it feels like, in terms of rights for workers and specifically. Uh, LGBTQ workers. Jeff, tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that a lot of people maybe still don't realize is that a majority of Americans are not protected um, by, from discrimination in, in this country um, up until, well, today. Um, so if you, in many states, in a majority of states, in fact, if somebody wanted to fire you for being gay or transgender, it was legal. There was, little, there was no recourse up until the Supreme Court basically said that the 1964 Civil Rights Act can be interpreted to cover LGBT rights as well, which is, makes us, you know, pretty much on par with the with the gay gay marriage ruling. You know, it's interesting too, Jeff, that uh, Greg Store too writing about this today, and he says more than half the U.S. states don't cover sexual orientation and gender identity through their own anti-discrimination laws, and more than half of the nation's eight million LGBT workers live in those states. So. This is a big, big deal. Right. Yeah, and it's, um, like you said, unexpected to some degree. Yeah. Um, with the current Supreme Court configuration. And, I mean, it, 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 it gets most of the workers now are protected. I mean, the Title, title Seven, as this 1964 law is referred to in shorthand, does not cover people who work at companies that have less than 15 employees. And that's still probably around 10 to 15 percent of Americans work at smaller companies that small majority of Americans work at companies with less than a thousand people so there wasn't a lot of protection for people who worked at the smallest companies most of the large corporations like most of the fortune 500 S&P 500 already have some sort of a regulation protecting LGBT workers so the law was really meant to protect you know the, the law really was sort of not covering people who were outside of those big companies. And so what does this mean? You know, Jeff, you and your team do such a great job sort of covering uh, diversity in all of its aspects uh, on the managing diversity team at at Bloomberg. And I do wonder, as you guys have talked about it, what what are the practical uh, implications for this? Are are there sort of economic factors that enter in here? What, What does it really mean when we get down to brass tacks? Well, I mean, it means job security, legal protection for a group of – and maybe make it a little more likely that people will be out at work. I mean, one of the big issues with gay marriage um, was that a lot of companies had been offering benefits, same-sex benefits. um, And when gay marriage was legal in all 50 states, there was this idea that we don't need that anymore because now you can get married and get the benefits. 
but a lot of people were concerned that if they lived in a state where it was legal to fire me for being gay, then I really didn't want to advertise my marriage uh, or I didn't want to get married. Right. So I would lose my, my health care um, unless I got married and then I could be fired. So there was sort of this catch-22, and that's now sort of taken away, um, at least when it comes to domestic implications. There's still global implications to being gay and married in other countries. But as of today, for most Americans, that is not an issue. Yeah. No, it's great, and uh, we really appreciate you bringing us the details on this. Jeff Green, managing yeah. diversity reporter for Bloomberg, joining us uh, from Detroit. It, this felt seismic in, in well, many ways. You Carol. said it at the top, unexpected, to have you know Neil, Gors- Neil Gorsuch, who's conservative, to have also John Roberts, the chief justice, also conservative. Gorsuch was the surprise for me. Right. I mean, Roberts has has emerged God, as sort of the swing yes. vote, right? The swing vote, right? Right. Um, and in many ways, uh, you know, seeing Neil Gorsuch not only vote that way, but right for the majority. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, that is really taking a big step in terms of what that decision was all about. And I do think, you know, we look at the three branches of our government um, and how they are supposed to kind of checks and balances on one another. And this, you know, shows to me at least that it continues to be an independent Supreme Court, which is such an important part of this government functioning. And I do think, you know, when it comes to, to rights of all individuals, I think there was a segment of the population that looked at this that has been rightly uh, agitated and upset and at least said, all right, here's a little bit of good news as we press forward. Yeah, considering certainly the, the, the recent backdrop. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So no doubt about it, what happens from here largely depends on what happens next with the virus. The economy, what type of bounce back we see as the country and the world reopen depends on whether or not people feel safe enough to go back to work and resume economic activities. This is happening on a day when new outbreaks in the U.S. have some states concerning whether to pause reopening. So in today's Business Week Economics Edition, we thought we got to look at where we are when it comes to the virus. With us is Michelle Cortez, health science and medical technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us uh, back with us on the phone from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Michelle, it is good to have you here. Uh, where are we? Like, I, I, you know, people talk about second wave, reopenings, maybe we should pause them. What are you hearing? What do we need to know? Well, I think that what we're learning is that this virus is a virus like all the other viruses, as we would have expected. The fact that most people in the world are still completely vulnerable to this new, new type of a bug There's no natural immunity to it. People had hoped that because it does fall into this kind of seasonal arrangement of viruses that we would see a a waning of its impact in the summer months. We're not seeing that. We're seeing it still going from one person to the next person. As long as there are people to be infected, that virus wants to infect them. And um, we haven't seen a drop, so we're not going to see a second peak. We might just see an increase in acceleration. But that's what we're looking at. It's hitting some places harder than others, but it has not gone away entirely from anywhere. And so, Michelle, and you and your colleagues have done such a good job of synthesizing this. I mean, this is ultimately the clash that we are seeing, which is public health versus economics and and, and economic health. Uh, in some ways, different states, different localities are dealing with it in a different way. What are we learning maybe on an, on a state-by-state basis? What jumps out at you that sort of gives us a sense of where we may be headed? 
Well, the thing that is really jumping out at me is the extent to which this is is circumferential for all of us. It, you have to make your own individual decision. You're going to have to make decisions for your family. You're going to have to make decisions for your city or town. You're going to have to make decisions for your state and for your country. You really can't get away from that when it comes to this situation. Michelle, what do you make about the story about Beijing over the weekend and that about a new outbreak in Beijing that reached nearly 100 infections over the weekend? They talked about, again, linked to a vegetable market, you know, linked to a market. Um, I don't know. How, what is, what, how do you take that into account? Well, that's ex- exactly the situation, right? There is no escaping this virus. That's what we have learned. Okay. So we really did think that, you know, that it, they were done in China. They had a terrible outbreak in Wuhan. They closed everything down. They, you know, they really handled it very aggressively. And mm-hmm. there was nothing happening there for 50 days. They had no cases. But you just have to let one or two people in. You get that rebounding again. And when you still have this completely vulnerable population because they haven't had this virus, and that's it. Like the herd immunity says, somewhere between. 60 and 80 percent of people either have to be immunized and you can't do that because it doesn't exist or you have to be infected. That's only going to give you one outlet. But again, to your point, we can't shut down the world. So we're going to have to figure out how to live with it. Yeah. And so to that exact point, Michelle, what seems to have worked from a public health perspective, barring complete shutdown, which I think it's safe to say a lot of government officials, state officials especially, are really resisting. And certainly we know that that's going to be resisted at the federal level. What seems to be working? It seems like this virus is actually pretty fragile. If you hit it with any kind of cleaning supplies, it seems to take care of the virus. If you wear a mask, the, the numbers that we're getting, I mean, there were studies early on that showed that people who were living with the very first people who were infected, when we knew almost nothing about it, they could live with somebody who was infected in the same household and not pass it along. We saw some cases when it came to the, the destroyer and the aircraft carriers, the number of patients who came out of that, that it was dramatic. If you wore a mask and tried to social distance at all, you were so much more protected than if you weren't. So we're going to have to drill down and get a little more clarity on that. But it is undisputably true that if you are taking actions to protect yourself, those are having significant effects and might have even more dramatic effects than anyone realizes. So I know that it's, you know, our country's kind of come divided about whether you wear a mask, what does that mean, what is that telling other people? But that's the concern, I think, in some of these places like Florida and Texas, where we have people going to bars and going to beaches, and they're not wearing masks, they're not protecting themselves, and we're seeing these surging infections. So it's like wearing a seatbelt. I mean, it's not going to hurt you to wear it at this point. Right. It's so simple. And I felt like I saw a lot of that over the weekend, Michelle, depending on where I was, where people were really good about wearing masks. Then I saw people, you know, close to one another with their masks kind of half off their face and talking and socializing. So, and I saw restaurants where their tables were out in parking lots and they were well spread out and they were very clear about what you could and couldn't do. Um, You know, but you're right. It's so simple. Jason, you keep talking about that. It's not just about protecting yourself, but it's about protecting your others by wearing a mask. And also, I'm just 
just going to echo what Michelle just said. Wear a mask. Yeah, it's not that hard. So simple. And, I, and, I, and actually, I'm going to steal that line, Michelle, that you just used, which is it is like wearing a seatbelt. You know, it's partially about your safety, but it's partially about the safety of those around you. So really appreciate it. Great context. This is the conversation we needed to have to sort of set the table for where we are, especially here at the beginning of the week. Michelle Cortez, health science, <clears throat> excuse me, health okay. science and Medical technology reporter for Bloomberg, award-winning journalist uh, on this story. She's just been a stalwart on this. Right. And if you want things to get back to normal, in other words, participate in whether you want to be going out to stores, going to restaurants or something, going back to your office, you know, it's so simple. Wear a mask. And that really reduces your risks dramatically and the risks of others because this is what it's all about. Yeah, and I do keep hearing that, and, and I do hope that that continues to build and, yeah. and that smarter and smarter people continue to pick that up. You know, our friend Scott Galloway, I saw a tweet of his over the weekend where he was citing a study similar to what Michelle was talking about, where if you wear a mask, if you do some basic, very basic social distancing right. stuff, the the chances of it spreading are dramatically, dramatically lower. Yeah, yeah, and that's worth noting, especially as we all are kind of just, you know – just want to get back to normal. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to say it. Well, we always love catching up with Andy Brown. And so let's continue our discussion around the world of economics because this pandemic has really upset in many ways the economic almost ethos of everything yeah. uh, that's going on here. Carol, Absolutely. Andy, of course, is the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us on the phone from New Hampshire. So, Andy, as you try and make sense of all of this, we rely on you uh, for your column every week to sort of set the stage. Uh, what were you thinking about this week? So really this week, thinking about our agenda, um, the new Bloomberg New Economy agenda for the rest of this year, um, you know, which, which kind of acknowledges the central reality that the global economy is now at this turning point. Um, you know, and, and it faces a, a whole set of, of really stark choices. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg was writing last week in the inaugural edition of uh, of Bloomberg Green, a phenomenal magazine. And, you know, he he, he said he was talking about the trillions of dollars that are are about to be flushed into the global economy. And and he was talking about the environment. He said, look, the choice is clear, right? I mean, we, we either invest in clean infrastructure to create jobs, improve public health, or we keep protecting polluting industry. And guess what? You know, the Trump administration has chosen to bail out oil and, 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 and gas companies. Um, you know, but exactly the same set of choices affects area after area of, of the global economy. Well, and you know what's interesting, too? I do feel like, and Andy, we've had some conversations, Kathy Wood over at ARK Investment, who you know, consistently reminds us that during times of stress and disruption in our world and in our economies, that's when you can kind of pivot and make some really big changes. And I do feel like whether it's, as you write, on the climate, whether it's on finance, whether it's on public health, whether it's on cities, how we look at things right now, we can make some decisions that will really change our course longer term. Right. Well, we, we, we just heard on the news headlines uh, j- just, just, just now how the Fed is going to invest in a broader range of corporate bonds. I mean, so, 
you, you know, uh, the, the economist Mohammed El Arian was, was writing about this in, in the Financial Times last week and uh, talking about these unprecedented sums of money that are being used to plug revenue shortfalls in, in companies. And he said, look, the question is, you know, is, is it, are these funds going to be used for short-term financial engineering, share buybacks, padding the pay of, of global CEOs, or is it going to be used to shore up the fundamentals, you know, the, the long-term base um, of the economy? And, and, and surely, if, if you look at it that way, um, you know, an obvious choice would be to engineer a new deal for workers, right? The essential workers who've held the whole thing together during this coronavirus pandemic, the gig workers who are now out of a job, the, the migrant workers in developing countries all over the world who've been sent back, you know, to their, to their villages. We need a, a new deal. Are we going to get a new deal out of, these, out, out of this massive finance um, that 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 is flowing from from the the, the COVID nineteen stimulus. What are the chances? <laughs> I don't know. You see, I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of depressing because in in area after area, you know, governments seem to be making the wrong choices. If you look at trade, you know, I mean, you know, the question now is, do we do we keep going with this multilateral trading system, which has brought unprecedented global prosperity? lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, um, has been a ladder to middle-class, uh, middle-income status for developing countries all over the world, or are we going to turn inward? And, and guess what's happening? We see trade tariffs, we see barriers to goods, we see barriers to people, even at the risk of precipitating a, a Great Depression, you know, uh, coming out of the recession. Um, you know, cities, you talk about cities, I, I was just on the, uh, on the phone talking to... Uh, 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 Dr. Oxiris Barbo, who's a New York health commissioner, looking at the issue of inequality mm. in New York, which is driving so many of these street protests. And you know, she's from the South Bronx, and in the South Bronx, life expectancy there is literally 30 years shorter than it is in a place like Greenwich, Connecticut. Right? Wow. I mean, 20, 25 percent of people living in the, in, in the Bronx suffer from food insecurity. You know, they're the, they're the ones that are queuing around the block in the, in, in the food lines. You know, and, and what are we going to do with inequality in cities? Are we going to wait for, these, for our cities to be, to be torn apart? Um, or are we going to fundamentally re-engineer them, reinvent the education system, healthcare systems, you know, to, for, to, to, to reduce these, these grotesque disparities. That's the choice we face in city. Right. And as in most things, these are big problems, global problems. Uh, Andy, and I know you guys look at it, and we'll see what kind of collaborations we get, global collaborations going forward. And I know you guys are going to be covering this uh, in the next year. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, Andy Brown, thank you as always. Editorial Director of Bloomberg New Economy on the phone from New Hampshire. And they're going to be focusing on those five areas uh, Jason, climate, finance, trade, public health, and cities uh, over the next year or so. So uh, we'll look forward to that uh, continued coverage. It's, it's, I feel like we're at a very important uh, moment in time. Absolutely. No, for sure. And I think, you know, looking at the economy globally is more important than ever. And that's what we really rely on, uh, Andy, for, as we said. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Mark Travis. He's president and CEO at Intrepid Capital. He joins us once again on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida. And Mark, it is good to have you back with us. I got to ask you first, though, man, we're seeing headlines out of Florida about virus cases. And I'm just curious, what are you seeing? What's it like in Florida right now? Because, you know, safe to say what goes on in the virus is going to determine our economic outlook, our capital, you know, our corporate profit outlook businesses getting back to normal and ultimately our market outlook. And I think the pause in the equity markets really showed that last week. So what are you seeing? Well, interestingly enough, Carol, it's probably not only the heat, but the unbearable humidity already. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, in in my corner of the Sunshine State, which is northeast Florida, uh, you know, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, that area, the the number of cases has been really quite contained uh, relative to Dade and Broward. So I don't follow on a case-by-case basis in the community, but we, we've been very fortunate in terms of number of deaths in this part of the state and or cases. So maybe we, uh, you know, flatten the curve early uh, to help, but um, it, it doesn't seem to be, at least geographically to, uh, to this region, it doesn't seem to be meaningfully impacted. And so that certainly, as you allude to, Mark, isn't necessarily the case across the country. And so as you try to get a reasonable and honest uh, economic picture and how that may play through, whether it's consumer spending or business continuity and folks getting back to the office, how do you factor that into your investment thesis? Well, Jason, you know, I think that um, one of my favorite Buffett quotes among many is uh, when the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming naked. (laughs) And um, I I think that what we've done for for 25 years in Intrepid is focus on free cash flow, uh, rational business valuation, strong um, balance sheets. And so that's coming back into focus. Um, You know, I think that um, so we're, we're always looking for that. And that's um, you know, I think that's really critical as we go through this. To me, I, who knows if we have a second wave or we have a second lockdown um, and, and how, how that affects business. And to me, it comes back to leverage. And, and I think what's probably helped the market today, as you all know, the, the markets, you know, pre-opening were off six or 700 Dow points. And the Fed came in and said, oh, they really are going to buy corporate bonds. Mm-hmm. To, to me, it comes back to debt. And, you know, whether you're a mortgage holder at a, on a mall and, you know, a cheesecake factory says, oh, we stopped paying rent on our 230 stores, or, you know, you're a private equity investor with a lot of leverage on top of your equity, everybody's focused on that leverage and supporting the credit markets is step one. But I also think, frankly, that's probably where some of the best, better risk-adjusted opportunities are for people in, in the capital markets. Okay. So talk to us about that. I am curious what kind of moves you guys have been doing. You've got a bunch of funds. I think you're the lead on the Intrepid Capital Fund. There's You guys have a balanced portfolio and you know an income fund. So talk to us about those funds in particular. What kind of adjustments maybe have you been making in this environment? 
Well, let's talk about the income fund first, because what we've always done, Carol, is we're a short-duration, high-yield fixed income investor. So Mm -hmm. our duration has always been short, whether it should be or not. We're really looking for what I call a three-foot putt. So we typically don't lend more than about three years. I I chuckle when I thought about this being the drive time, because my next suggestion, I would not suggest you ingest before you try to drive, particularly out of Manhattan, which would be something that produces marijuana. Uh, Believe it or not, we've found a couple of um, marijuana bonds that um, we're excited about. The number of medical marijuana users in the state of Florida has gone up substantially. Uh, There's talk of legislation to allow, uh, you know, banks to bank uh, producers. And so there are a couple of issues here that I think uh, have merit. One is the Cureleaf 13% term loan of uh, one of 24 and the other one is um, True Leave, which is a I had it here right in front of me, is a also a 24 issue. It's a nine and three quarter coupon. So we think these are very uh, well covered, and uh, there's a strong demand for CBD oil and medical marijuana, and so those are something that are a little bit off the grid uh, that we actually own in our income fund. And so where else do you invest in uh, in a place like this? You know, you talked about balance sheets. You talked about free cash flow. Are there – I mean, I think uh, you've invested in some of the dollar stores, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, one that's worked out really well, Jason, has been Dollar General. Uh, you know, as you're probably familiar, KKR took it private years back and then it's come back public and it's done well since then. So that's one that's really worked out. The one that we're still anticipating improvement on – is Dollar Tree. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they merge with family dollar stores, and uh, I think the, the Dollar Tree management has been excellent, trying to kind of rationalize the, the family dollar uh, older stores, if you will, um, and, and refurbish them to the point where they're, they're producing like they'd hoped. Um, but, you know, Dollar Tree, it's funny, if, if you're familiar at all with um, Party City, yep. th- things like... Um, you know, helium, the supply of helium affects stores like Dollar Tree and uh, Party City because people go there for for tchotchkes, for birthday parties and what have you. So, but um, that type of uh, discounted retailer doesn't, is not as um, subject to being Amazon in our view, if you, if you follow me. <laughs> and yep. um, it, it, um, it tends to be more impulsive purchase and tends to serve probably a, a lower income strata that is not um, as, you know, internet centric a buyer as somebody in your neighborhood might be. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, as we wrap up, I just got to have, I got to ask you one more question, which is in your backyard, are we going to see what was formerly known as the world's largest cocktail party with your Georgia Bulldogs playing the Gators this fall. What's your prediction? You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I certainly hope so because SEC football is such a large part of this part of the world. I I think the challenge for all the SEC schools is a a large majority of their revenue comes from ticket sales and actually people in their stadiums, whether it's at the Swamp in Gainesville or in Sanford Stadium in uh, Athens, Georgia, as you mentioned. Um, You know, so whereas, say, Shad Khan owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, it's a TV 
TV right. contract, and I'm not sure they care if you show up. But let's hope so because it's one hell of a party. It hope is. to see you. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a fun, fun afternoon for sure. All right. Uh, really good to spend some time with you. Mark Travis joining us from Jacksonville, President CEO of Intrepid Capital. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.